Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lupmon, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. And today we are talking about some new legislation that's seeking to revise the longstanding U.S. policy toward Taiwan and its implications on U.S.-China relations, the political history behind how college tuition became the expensive debt trap that it is today, and... We have a pop culture segment today where we'll be talking about one of our favorite movies. And later on in our show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you. But before we can move on. So the Biden administration has squeezed out what they're calling another victory in averting the rail workers strike yesterday. I would have actually loved for the rail workers to have shut this country down today. But the fact is that despite what the corporate bosses tell you, workers actually care more about the American people's needs than the bosses do. The deal that was struck is that the rail workers will now have guaranteed time away from medical visits, no disruptions to current health care plans, an immediate wage increase of 14 percent and 24 percent over the next five years, annual lump sum bonuses of $5,000, and all that sounds pretty good. But the sticking point for me is that instead of getting the 15 paid sick days that the union sought, the deal only includes voluntary assigned days off and one additional paid day off. Currently, rail freight workers don't have any sick days, but this deal allows their work schedule to resemble something closer to five days a week rather than a full week and guarantees that they won't be fired for visiting physicians. These greedy rail tycoons were firing workers for going to the doctor after they cut staff so drastically that workers were on practically seven-day-a-week schedules, always on call, overworked, stressed out, and they were under threat of being fired if they went to the doctor. USA Today reports that Dennis Pierce, president of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, said the turning point in negotiations came when the unions finally convinced the railroad companies to provide workers time off for illness and medical illnesses. Pierce said even a single day is an improvement from even recommendations by a presidential emergency board that Biden assembled in July to mediate the labor dispute. With the threat of congressional intervention, if a deal wasn't reached by Friday, he said it made it incredibly hard to get any paid leave in the final deal. And that's wild to me that even Joseph Biden, who has been talking about how pro-union he is, didn't even have it in him to tell his own emergency board to advocate for simple paid sick leave for rail employees before the rail companies were forced to squeeze out this paltry one day of sick leave. Listen to what the president of the Rail Workers Union said here. It was incredibly hard to get the president's own appointed board of negotiators and the president himself to push for sick leave for rail workers. We expect the rail tycoons not to want to give up another dime, but the so-called pro-union President Joe Biden couldn't use his bully pulpit to push for something better than one lousy sick day for rail workers? Pierce also said... 
that the voluntary assigned days off and the one paid sick day concession was, quote, a big win for us. We actually, for the first time ever, negotiated contract language that prevents the railroads from punishing our guys under the attendance policy to go to the doctor. That's been a critical issue. This wasn't a paid leave issue, end quote. And okay, I can see how this is a win for the rail workers. But you know me, I'm never going to let the government off the hook for not doing a whole hell of a lot more for workers than they did, especially when this government is run by the so-called most pro-union president ever. Just like with the not canceling all student loan debt, not protecting abortion rights, not protecting the child tax credit, not doing anything to protect citizens from police terrorism, Joe Biden could have done more for rail workers. But he just chose not to. And the only reason we don't have a rail strike happening in this country today is because the rail workers actually care more about not disrupting the lives of Americans than their bosses do. And they sure care more about us than the president cares about them. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is taking credit for flying migrants who arrived in San Antonio, Texas, to Martha's Vineyard after they stopped in Florida. For months, Texas and Arizona have sent busloads of migrants to the Democratic-run cities of New York, Chicago, and Washington, D.C., but DeSantis, who is, of course, up for re-election in a few months and is absolutely going to run for president in 2024, just watch, did one better than just bussing migrants out of his state. The Florida legislature under DeSantis appropriated $12 million dollars to transport migrants from the state to other locations. So DeSantis had about 50 migrants, mostly from Venezuela, a country that, remember, continues to be under brutal U.S. economic sanctions, had those 50 migrants flown to the vacation island of Martha's Vineyard, the vacation spot of the rich and famous, and had them picked up at the airport in two buses that were sent by Republican governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, and then had them dropped off not far from the home of Kamala Harris. Of course, this is a political stunt. One Venezuelan migrant who arrived at Martha's Vineyard identified himself as Luis, said that he and nine relatives met with a woman named Perla who promised them a flight to Massachusetts along with shelter, support for 90 days, help with work permits and English lessons. He said they were surprised when their flight landed at Martha's Vineyard. He said the woman, Perla, who also put them up in a hotel, didn't provide a last name or any affiliation, but asked them to sign a liability waiver. He said, we're scared. I hope they give us some help. U.S. politicians are using human beings as political pawns for their re-election campaigns as this government continues to wage economic war on their home countries, making them so unstable that people would risk life and limb to leave, only to come to the very belly of the beast that is keeping the imperialist boot on their home country's necks. The Trump-publicans will love this stunt, and DeSantis will probably win re-election and maybe even the Republican nomination for president in 2024. 
But for the $12 million that Florida allocated and however much Texas set aside to play political chess with human beings, they could have just housed, clothed, and fed those 50 people they sent to Martha's Vineyard instead. But actually helping people with its vast wealth? Yeah, that's just not the American way. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And let's keep the movement moving on, as they say. And we are talking today about some new legislation seeking to revise longstanding U.S. policy toward Taiwan and what that legislation's implications could have on U.S.-China relations. And I'm happy to be joined by K.J. No, a scholar, educator, and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific. And he's also a member of Veterans for Peace and senior correspondent with flashpoints on KPFA. KJ, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Absolutely glad you could join me to talk about this new piece of legislation. It's a U.S.-Taiwan bill that is actually not meeting any resistance in the Senate right now, uh, even though the White House seems to have some misgivings. And this legislation would overhaul U.S. policy toward Taiwan, uh, and it would be the most comprehensive revamp of U.S.-Taiwan policy in more than 40 years for decades. And this, of course, comes on the heels of Nancy Pelosi's uh, trip to Taipei and the other uh, U.S. diplomats who followed her in an unprecedented response from China's military that, you know, they showed a a great deal of restraint. But it was clear provocation uh, on the part of Nancy Pelosi and the other U.S. uh, politicians who followed her in visiting Taipei. So what is this legislation, And is it just another step, a legislative step uh, toward more provocation toward uh, China using Taiwan? I would say that it's exactly what you say. It's it's a legislative step that is a significant escalation and provocation against China. I think the the first thing to look at is the title of the bill. I mean, it's uh, the short title is the Taiwan Policy Act of 2022. The long title is to support the security of Taiwan and its right of self-determination and broader purposes. Imagine if China passed a bill uh, that was written to ensure the security of a separatist movement in the United States and the right of self-determination, for example, of an American state or an American dependency. I think that the U.S. public and the U.S. government would be up in arms about it. Uh, What it essentially does is that it is a bill for weaponizing and supporting Taiwan independence. It's, you know, literally uh, a, a Taiwan war act, and it doesn't even have a fig leaf to cover up the very, very naked, aggressive, and provocative stance that its uh, 
you know, engendering. And what it will do if it passes in the United States is it will signal the end of the one China policy, which is essentially the basis on which U.S.-China relations are founded. And it will also trigger in China, China's own anti-secession law, which gives China the authority and the right to use any measures necessary to prevent secession. The specific uh, articles inside it have to do with accelerating military cooperation and training. It has to do with the fast tracking of arms. Uh, it has to do with the inclusion of Taiwan in international organizations, therefore giving it a de facto sovereignty in, uh, you know, in international standing. Uh, there is a section on a free trade agreement. And then most ominously, there's uh, section eight, which is preparations for sanctions against China, literally the kind of sanctions that, uh, you know, were levied against uh, Russia. This is the same, a similar regime of sanctions, in particular, financial sanctions against the PRC. And all of this is part of a preparation, both of provocation for war, as well as uh, preparation for hybrid war against China, along with the massive militarization uh, and the designation of Taiwan Island as a non-NATO ally. And, you know, just to give folks an idea of the kinds of, of conversations that U.S. elected officials are having about this legislation, Jeff Merkley, the Democrat from Oregon, um, in the Senate committee hearings about this bill said, quote, if we don't crank up our support for Taiwan, there will be a military offensive against Taipei, he said. And when they talk about cranking up our support, meaning the United States government, what they're really talking about, as you pointed out, KJ, is weapon sales, militarization. How much money is allocated in this uh, legislation uh, for military or direct military assistance to Taiwan? Um, I think it's over $5 billion, But, you know, these numbers, you know, I think hide the fact that the tenor uh, of the machinery and the weaponry that is being uh, sent to Taiwan is shifting. Prior uh, to, to recent years, most of the weaponry sold to Taiwan was laid up earlier generation weaponry. They were kind of vanity uh, projects. They were the, you know, the equivalent of uh, a luxury Gucci handbag, that things that were, uh, you know, kind of vanity uh, military uh, uh, armaments that were not that effective. Since in most recent years and months, the escalation or the exportation has, the focus has been on asymmetrical armaments that are supposed to help uh, Taiwan engage in what is referred to as a porcupine defense, that is to make it uh, uh, asymmetrically and uh, effectively uh, impossible to, uh, you know, to uh, uh, undermine or attack. Now, the problem is that in any security dilemma, once you start ratcheting up with these kinds of stands and militarization, it 
immediately creates a counter-escalation uh, uh, on the side of the other party. And so what is referred to as cranking up support for Taiwan is really a provocation. It's military provocation. It is as if China was sending, uh, you know, highly... Uh, lethal weaponry, for example, to Guam or any of a number, any of a number of other uh, separatist movements in the United States. It is clearly a provocation, and it uh, it skirts the basic logic that since the 1970s, for over 50 years, this uh, one China policy as instantiated by the Shanghai communique and the three communiques themselves has guarded the peace and resulted in mutual development on both sides of the Taiwan Strait. If it's not broken, why is the U.S. trying to fix it? The reason why it's trying to fix it is it's trying to fix things in the direction of war. Mm. And this ties in with a larger project of the United States, which is supposed to encircle, contain, and eventually disrupt and take down China. Taiwan is the centerpiece of an arc of uh, encirclement along the first island chain. It's the keystone of this encirclement. Uh, it is literally, uh, you know, the, the, if, it's, if it is weaponized, it becomes, uh, you know, a lethal weapon held against the throat and belly of China. Uh, and in the past, Taiwan has always served as the imperial outpost for U.S. militarism. And this uh, legislation is an, is an attempt to reestablish that in the most blatant and provocative and dangerous way possible. Absolutely true. Now, there are questions about whether this bill will actually pass because uh, Joe Biden has signaled that he he's not fully in support of it. He has asked for some tweaks to the bill. He, he hasn't said that he would not absolutely sign it, and he certainly hasn't said that he is outright opposed to it. But even though it's not certain that Biden would sign the legislation if it reached his desk as a standalone measure, the, the legislation could actually still pass without presidential signature. How would that happen? Uh, well, there's a, a number of ways. It, it could be, uh, you know, uh, uh, pork barreled into uh, any of a number of other types of legislation. Uh, and then, you know, it would be become very, very hard to, uh, you know, veto. Uh, the current White House is taking out the asbestos clause because they know that this thing by itself is too hot to handle because the administration is trying to have it both ways. It's trying to escalate against China, literally, you know, provoke war. And at the same time, it still wants some kind of plausible deniability that it still recognizes that there is only one China, the PRC is a legitimate government, and Taiwan is a province of China, which the entire world recognizes, including the Taiwan uh, constitution itself. And so this is such a hot topic that uh, I think the Biden administration 
uh, is loath to touch it directly. I think they would like it to be sugar-coated and uh, pork-barreled into some other legislation that they could kind of surreptitiously pass it. Failing that, they want certain kinds of amendments that maintains the fig leaf of a one-China policy. But I think it's it's actually they they've done themselves uh, in a you know I think they've done themselves a disservice. Uh, the simple fact is that if this legislation passes in any form, as I said, once again, it is the end of the one China policy and a disavowal of the Shanghai, uh, the three communiques, the foundation of U.S.-China relations. And once we dissolve those relations, all bets are off. And, you know, even if the people in the United States are unclear about what the U.S. government is doing with this kind of legislation or this potential legislation and the uh, provocative visits to Taipei, uh, Xi Jinping is not. He actually has uh, entered into uh, an agreement with uh, Russia uh, to uh, strongly support each other on issues concerning their respective court interests when they will meet with uh, uh, President Vladimir Putin at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit in the ancient Silk Road city of Samarkand, Uzbekistan, soon. So during the summit, Xi Jinping said that China is also willing to deepen pragmatic cooperation in such areas as trade, agriculture, and uh, connectivity. Now, this, of course, is just a, a, a small segment of the reason that Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin are making this agreement. And it is because these countries, China and Russia, have a, quite honestly, a common enemy in the imperialist uh, um, warmongering aggression of the United States and its military gang of thugs, NATO. So what do we need to know about uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and how monumentous is this cooperation between Xi and Putin? It is very, very monumental. And the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, I think the best way to understand that is to look at a map. Look at a map and see what the countries of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization are. You'll see that it covers almost exactly the entire centrality of the Eurasian continent. And this is what geostrategists have been saying since the early 20th century, is the heartland or the pivot state uh, of the world. That is, uh, according to Alfred Mackinder, uh, he who controls uh, the heartland controls the pivot state, uh, and uh, he who controls the pivot state controls the world. It is the area that has the largest population, uh, the largest wealth, the largest resources, uh, and it signals this consolidation of a block in the heartland of the Eurasian continent, signals the end of the colonial a sea-based naval powers, that is, uh, the United States uh, and the Western Atlantic colonial imperial powers, uh, and uh, signals the end of the Colombian era towards an era of land-based interconnectivity and mutual support and mutual development, which is what the SCO is all about. It is a kind of uh, attempt to create 
uh, a multilateral uh, system where countries respect each other's uh, sovereignty, do not interfere and relate to one another on the basis of mutual respect, mutual security, equality, and mutual development. And you can see that in the, the huge amounts of economic development happening between uh, the many countries, in particular between Moscow and Beijing. Uh, uh, you know, trade turnover jumped 35%. Uh, from last year. Uh, and uh, you can also see that, you can see that most concretely if you land in uh, Samarkand, where the uh, uh, meeting is being held. Uh, when you land, you land in a world-class airport built by the Chinese. Uh, you will go and stay in one of eight world-class hotels built by the Chinese. And the delegates are meeting in a huge convention hall, which is also built by the Chinese. This is what the relationship is about. It's about building. It's about creating mutual benefits. It's about creating assets and infrastructure rather than this rules-based U.S.-led order, which is all about intimidation, block forming, and ultimately destruction and war. And, you know, there is some chatter, I suppose, in U.S. corporate media about, you know, China needs to avoid being uh, characterized as being in a block with Russia. I get the feeling that China really doesn't care how the U.S. Uh, um, uh, characterizes its relationship with Russia or any of the other many countries in the world that China has good relations with, including Iran, that has also signed a memorandum to join the Shanghai. A cooperation organization. What are your thoughts on this idea that China needs to be, or 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 uh, um, or, or has to be careful about how uh, their relationship with Russia is characterized? Well, I think the Chinese are extending the, you know, the um, the the branch of peace to all countries. They're saying, look. We can create a better system, which is not the Western neoliberal Washington consensus. You're either with us, against us, and we will continue to extract you until you wither away and die from immiseration. They're saying that we're willing to cooperate, work with anybody. This is not a block so much as it is an opportunity for us all to work together in mutual security, mutual development, sustainable development, uh, and in uh, you know, win-win cooperation. I think that's what they're trying to get across. This is being characterized in the New York Times and others that, you know, China is afraid and it's not sure what it wants to do and it doesn't want to be seen as a block. Well, that's misguided because the U.S. has already designated uh, Russia and China as official enemies. The term that it uses, uh, a little bit of a, you know, uh, Orwellian term is it refers to them as revisionist powers, but the five enemies are formulating national security strategy and national defense strategy as the two plus three, that is the two revisionist powers, the two great enemies, Russia and China, and then the three little enemies, that is North Korea, Iran, and non-state actors. Uh, this two plus three four formulation has essentially already branded 
these countries as enemies to be eventually destroyed and taken down. But more than that, it has pushed them all together, which is why in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, you see the joining of Iran along with, you know, half a dozen other countries that are trying to, uh, that are looking for membership. And also, most strikingly, uh, remember that India is also part of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So we have Russia, China, India, and now Iran, along with uh, some of the smaller Central Asian countries. This creates a formidable block of security uh, and economic interchange and cultural interchange. And this is what exactly the U.S. does not want, but its belligerent stance and its you're with us against us block forming uh, uh, approach is exactly what has accelerated uh, this constellation of countries. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for your analysis on these issues, KJ. We are out of time for this segment, but we will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're having a pop culture segment where we will be chopping it up about the movie Nope. I actually love it. It's a really good movie, and I'm glad to be joined for this conversation by our producer extraordinaire, Josh Gomez. Josh, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jackie. It's always a pleasure to be on this side of the studio. It always is a pleasure to have you on this side of the studio, too. So... Give me your thoughts on Nope. I'm not going to lead on this one. What'd you think? Oh, Jackie, I have so many thoughts, and I I, I spend a you know um, um, an almost embarrassing amount of time, honestly, on uh, just thinking about this movie and you know its implications uh, and the lessons that uh, that Jordan Peele has to uh, to teach us in this movie. You know, but I think maybe maybe the the most important uh, thing to think about uh, is that. The whole movie is about spectacle mm-hmm. and and about I, I, at least in my opinion, I don't know if Jordan Peele is really going for this uh, specific uh, interpretation, but like the profit off of spectacle and how these like for lack of a better word, spectacular things, you know, like a monkey like tearing somebody's face off or mm. or an alien eating horses uh, in the in the movie and then like in the real world like, Countless, I mean, countless, uh, just horrible images that are shown on our TV screens whenever some tragedy happens, uh, or you know, even the Queen's funeral uh, uh, itself is a great uh, example of spectacle. How all of those those things are just exploited to make a quick buck, you know, without like really like getting down into like what all of this, all of that actually is and what it actually means, you know, like like you know, with the Queen's funeral, it's a whole, it's a whole show, uh, right. and and you know, that's not necessarily uh, the fault of media. Uh, covering it because that was going to happen regardless because right. of the, you know, how, how things look with the, the work with the monarchy, but uh, they're still profiting off of it. I mean, uh, in the, in the film, like 
somebody's face gets torn off. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's and it's played out for uh, for for profit. I mean, the uh, the character Jupe actually has a room where people sit mm-hmm. and 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 with memorabilia. Uh, in I, I don't know in some weird macabre almost uh, fascination with with the fact that somebody died on or multiple people actually died on set right but uh, yeah you know that's that's like uh, I think maybe maybe the biggest thing that I I took from uh, from uh, Nope and you know it's it's a sad reflection of uh, the the world that uh, we live in honestly. Yeah, I mean, at, at first, and I, and I have to admit, I, I watched the movie, and for, for folks who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about uh, the science fiction movie Nope, that is literally the title, uh, by Jordan Peele, and just a quick synopsis of, of the movie, no spoilers, the residents of a lonely gulch inland uh, uh, California town bear witness to an uncanny and chilling discovery that's literally from the uh, IMDb db.com page for the the uh, movie so I didn't read the summary didn't give you any spoilers don't want to do that really hope you watch the movie I really like how what you just said about the the way spectacle uh, and entertainment how exploitation is turned into entertainment and how it's turned into spectacle like when when Jupe realizes what, you know, makes the discovery. And he makes this Faustian deal, what he thinks is a is a bargain with the entity uh, to sacrifice animals for spectacle, for his profit. I mean, he's doing the exact same thing that he was doing with, uh, you know, monetizing the spectacle of uh, the monkey that, you know, attacked people on the on the, you know, fictional uh, TV show. He's just doing it on a wider scale. And oddly enough, he, he it's almost like I feel like the the spectacle of those uh, uh, events were intentionally made to look and feel like an evangelical tent revival. Right. I like because when you're watching the movie, that's what you actually think is happening when that when when that event is sort of first previewed because you see it from the, one of the main characters' perspective, uh, uh, Daniel uh, uh, Kalua, uh, who plays the son of the horse trainer who dies tragically as a result of trying so hard not to give you all spoilers. <laughs> um, but but so you see this event that you think is happening like in a stadium and it sounds like an evangelical, you know, revival type of thing. But then you realize later on that it's not. And and it's the but it's the same kind of exploitation as spectacle, you know, spectacle as exploitation for profit as a lot of these televangelical kind of uh, uh, productions are. It it is a profit-making venture. And they even use, when I think it, and I'm sitting, and I'm sitting, I was sitting there thinking about it when I was watching, like all of these quote-unquote healing these these faith healers that that are televis- they have these people who are obvious plants who are obviously not sick that are that are props and and the the animals that are kind of used as bait it's the same way that those people are used as bait in those kinds of faith healing things and and the people who send those folks money are 
you know, they're 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 the marks. They're the targets. So Jupe is doing the exact same thing. So I I, I don't know if uh, Peel was intentionally making that connection, but of course I made it. So, <laughs> you know, but I, I do. I, I love that part. And I also love how uh, the main character, Daniel Kalua, is like the antithesis of that. His 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 love of the life that his father left, his father's legacy. His father was a horse whisperer, trained horses for movies. His father had the charisma to do it. He had the talent to train horses, but he clearly, his heart was clearly not into, you know, using these horses for, uh, in, in movies, you know, exploiting them for the entertainment complex. So Kalua's character is the antithesis of, you know, this this exploitation for entertainment kind of theme that's going on throughout the movie. And he's the one who figures out, oh, what this is. And and I, I have to tell you, I'm not sure that I was satisfied with the ending of the movie. I think it was a good ending. And, and it was it was a happy ending in one way. But in another way, I, I almost always root for the monster. I'm sorry. That's just kind of how I am. I mean, if, if if I think that if if there are those elements of exploitation and capitalism and oppression, I just feel like, why can't the monster be, you know, why can't we negotiate with the monster? And like, can we feed you some oligarchs? Would that be OK? I So I just kind of felt a little bit let down that the monster that the monster met the his end. But but visually. I just thought that was the most creative. I, I would have never expected visually for that entity to have been represented the way it was. And it was beautiful. It was sublime. But it was also oddly terrifying, Josh. Yeah, Jackie, you know, that was actually another another thing I really liked about this movie is that, like, it, it kind of, like, kept me guessing in, insofar as, like, uh, genre, honestly. Like, I, you know, when we start off in the movie, we don't really know anything about it, but there's this terrible thing that's doing uh, terrible things to, to animals and people, and we don't really know anything about it. And so, you know, at least for me, it's, like, brings up a lot of, like, Lovecraft uh, uh, horror elements, some, like, really cosmic horror elements. And then we finally see the monster. And, you know, I, I, when I first watched the film, I... I, I at first, was like kind of disappointed actually that we saw the the monster because I was I was really digging this like cosmic horror vibe. Right. So like I'm you know I'm, I'm afraid and I'm like it's it's a fear of the unknown. It's a it's a fear of something that's so the magnitude of which is so great that I I, I like you know that my mind like just couldn't comprehend it. But then it moves into more of a westerny like adventure type vibe, and it's mm-hmm. like instead of just being terrifying because it doesn't really stop being terrifying, but it's fun too. Really fun, you know that that uh, final uh, act of the movie where the 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 OJ and uh, Emerald and uh, and their crew are trying to profit from the spectacle of the monster. Mm-hmm. That that final uh, act is just, the tension is just is so I, I could feel it yes. uh, within myself, and I just I don't know I just really appreciated that uh, that this this these genres are being blended in such a creative way by uh, Jordan Peele and especially. Uh, uh, the uh, of course the acting is amazing, especially from uh, Daniel Kaluuya and um, uh, Kiki Palmer, um, who really humanize, I guess, something that is very much not human, 
in in the you know the desire of of uh, or rather the I mean the monster itself mm-hmm. uh, in that like they're exploiting it like they're exploiting it so it's not like human and so in, in like you know a very good way but it's like uh, they're like really like humanizing what they want to do with it like mm-hmm. like what is uh, the reaction of someone who has a failing horse farm or ranch right. um, when you have this big entity above your 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 ranch mm-hmm. what are you gonna do right you need money exactly yeah <laughs> yeah and I mean and I think and I like and I, I just I think I just have to interject Kiki Palmer is not one of my favorite actors I just when I saw she was in this movie I was like I am not watching this thing because she, she just she just annoys me that much and yes her character annoyed me in this movie <laughs> but I do like that that she that that the idea to monetize, you know, to to to, you know, to to profit off of the exploitation of the monster was her idea. And that was the tension between her and her brother, O.J., who's trying to carry on the legacy of their father, where she doesn't care too much about the legacy. She just, you know, wants to make money. But he you know, he wants to save the farm uh, or save the ranch. But he also, you know, doesn't want to get eaten by the monster. So. So, so there. I think there are really great levels of tension. I I had to watch the movie a couple of times to get the 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 ending, you know, to get how it happened. It's a great complex movie. It's a great western themed movie. It's it's really a lot of fun. It's creepy, visually stunning. Absolutely watch. Nope. It's in theaters on streaming services right now. If you can get it, uh, big ups to uh, Jordan Peele on this one. I think this makes up for uh, the last one that I didn't understand, which was Us. Good job, Jordan. <laughs> and we'll be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So stay tuned. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about higher education, but I think we need to ask the question, why is higher education so expensive? And I'm glad to be joined by Erica Keynes, founder of Liberation Through Reading and editor of Hood Communist Blog, which I highly recommend you all read to get into this discussion. Erica, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So... You know, there has been a lot of conversation about Joe Biden's recent cancellation of $10,000 in student loan debt for Americans that are making less than $125,000 a year, uh, as well as extending the student loan repayment moratorium. And I mean, those are good things. I mean, there was some financial relief provided to lots of people, but I think in the conversation about the distance between what Biden did with the student loan debt that he canceled and what he promised on the campaign trail, there is like a chasm of difference between what he did and what he promised. I think the conversation about why the cost of higher education 
is so high is completely lost in that entire conversation. So you wrote a piece in Hood Communist blog uh, uh, called Class Struggle and Higher Education, where you go into this very issue. The cost of higher education, why it shifted so drastically from free to minimal cost to placing individuals in thousands of dollars worth of debt. So give us some background into why that has happened. Yeah. um, So I wrote this piece a lot. um, A lot of it was thinking through an article that you had written. Actually, I don't even think it was an article. I think it was one of your articles. monologues where you were talking about the uh, Joe Biden and what he has done. And you were talking about the stark difference in the campaign. And for a long while, um, you know, with Black Lions for Peace's work, we had on Hood Communist a piece about the neocolonial um, collusion between the state and higher education, specifically HBCUs. I've been thinking through campuses and universities as a site of struggle, uh, primarily because um, as a black campus movement, uh, black students and racial reconstitution of higher education that was written by uh, Ibram Kendi explains that those were always a site of struggle. Um, But what I find interesting in the conversation about the student loan is that nobody was really asking, well, why why are student loans so high? Why do student loans exist? And I think it's really important to name where the shift of higher education and the cost, uh, where it came from and why. So in this piece, I lay out that um, under the Nixon administration, it determined college students were organizing themselves based on political opposition to domestic and global imperialist policy. So from anywhere from the Black Power Movement to uh, the war in Vietnam, uh, universities and colleges were a site for these sort of struggles. And uh, Roger Freeman, who was a key educational advisor to Nixon and went on to work for Ronald Reagan, he warned of the danger of producing an educated proletariat. And he said that in 1970. And around that time is where you could see the shift in the consideration of um, low-income or free college Yeah, you know, I think it's striking that uh, uh, this person just flat out uh, said that uh, Roger Freeman just flat out said that it is dangerous to have an educated proletariat. And the fact that he used the word proletariat, I think, is very key in understanding our opposition here, what we're fighting up against. I think very often, Erica, we in the struggle, and particularly folks who are a little bit younger, uh, believe that the people in power don't know that the, the policies that they are advancing are harmful to working class and poor people. But I mean, these kinds of uh, comments and policies that come from history that's just right there, if we're willing to look for it, where these folks are very clear in their animosity toward the working class and the poor and calling them out by what we are. We are the proletariat and saying it is dangerous to have those people educated. So we're going to do everything we can to make sure that they're not. How do you think we need to, uh, um, uh, uh, I guess, incorporate or understand that the system and the ruling class really does understand that this is a class struggle. They're not unclear about this. Right. 
it's very much a class struggle. Um, even calling it an educated proletariat, I think, speaks to the um, the anti-radicalism and anti-communism effects that uh, Dr. Sharice Vernon-Spelly always discusses in her work. Because um, we can see that clearly. The universities, like I, I noted, in these uh colleges and public campuses, they became a site for struggle primarily because they were reading these sources. They were reading socialist texts. They were reading engaging communist texts. They were having these kind of conversations. And they were drawing support not only from, uh, you know, Latino and Asian and Black and Native American students, but the surrounding communities. Because, again, um, as uh, the book in the shadow of uh, the Ivory Tower um, by the, the, the variant Baldwin, what he discusses is how these universities, they do plummet themselves in the midst of ongoing communities. So this was very dangerous because these communities are working class communities. And if these ideas are permanently beyond the, the you know, the campus <laughs> and they're getting into the communities, that is a danger, um, especially when we consider the time, uh, the political time. So the, the because of the growth and the sophistication of student political activity, Nixon encouraged the defunding of pu- public colleges. And when, when that was done, we have to remember the cost of public colleges, whether it was free or, or low cost, benefited the students. It was also a struggle that communities went through. Um, I noted in the piece, uh, June Jordan talks about, um, in her book, uh, Civil Wars, Observations from the Front Line, the, the long struggle waged on City College in New York um, just to be able to have the surrounding community come in and enjoy the spoils of college that's in their community. Um, and this these increasing struggles that allowed for the, the widening of um, of students to come in, of, of engagement, was a real threat. And I think that, that we need to really understand that ideas are really a threat. Um, and the struggle for ideas is really a struggle that we need to engage, um, primarily because we're talking about the cost of, of colleges, but we're talking about student loans in, in the context of a struggle, we've already won. Mm. We've already won these struggles. So to even not even mention that or even consider those struggles or even question, well, why are we even paying $10,000? Like, why? And, that, and to say that, you know, he's giving $10,000 doesn't even really put a dent in a majority of people. Um, student loans is a real issue still. Um, and I think that we need to consider or remember that these are struggles that we have won. These are struggles that we have waged and campuses still remain a site for that particular working class struggle. Absolutely. And uh, you mentioned uh, the word defund. Nixon encouraged the states to defund public colleges. It's so interesting, uh, Erica, that defund is a word that Republicans and a lot of Democrats now, you know, even with Joe Biden saying we we can't defund the police, we have to fund them, fund them, fund them. And he actually is going on to do just that. But defund was completely fine with politicians, particularly the conservatives in this country, when it came to taking money from public colleges and universities. Universities, but it's not just the politicians 
who were in on the privatization of public education in this country. Uh, It was also the Supreme Court. So what role did the Supreme Court play in the move from uh, nearly free to or low cost uh, uh, college education to what we have now? Yes. Uh, in 1971, Associate Supreme Court Justice uh, Lewis Powell Jr., he wrote a confidential memo uh, to the chairman of the Education Committee in the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, uh, and it would become known as the blueprint for corporate domination of American democracy. Um, so in the memo, Powell, uh, alarmed by the youth activity on college campuses as well, he comes up with this strategy, and he assesses the same problems that Nixon notices as well, that students are really becoming activated. Um, and in the, in, in the uh, memo, he actually says they include, not unexpectedly, the communists, new leftists, and other revolutionaries who would destroy the entire system, both political and economic. So for them, um, this was a major, this was a major thing. This was nothing to take lightly. Um, he also knows that these extremists of the left are far more numerous, they're better financed, and they increasingly are more welcomed and encouraged by other members, ele- other elements of society than ever before in our history. Um, and so he's saying that because we are allowing working class uh, communities to become more en- en- engrossed in uh, higher education, they're getting a particular education that's activating them to go back into these communities and disrupt uh, what we're doing. Uh, so, yeah, so I think that that, it's, for me, that memo was, was very key. It's still, it's still key because the cost of student loans today is not by happenstance. It was very much intended to cause a permanent harm to the most disenfranchised. So they, they identified um, political activism as a very risky thing for the American structure and student political activism, um, primarily, specifically. And, you know, since we understand that the campus, the college campus, is and always has been a site of struggle, how do you put this knowledge and this history, now this knowledge of this history of how uh, a college tuition has gone, uh, uh, grown to, uh, you know, the, the debt trap that it is from uh, its origin, the origins in this country as a public good, how do you frame all of this knowledge in the need for continuing political education that needs to go on in the very communities that uh, that were targeted by these policies to privatize and corporatize higher education in the first place. Yeah, I like to just continuously remind students um, and communities that are surround that are surrounding these universities that these are struggles that we have already won. Um, because what's happening is the discourse around student loan forgiveness is just really people arguing who does and does not deserve forgiveness. And it really skirts the issue of the state collusion with higher education, which ultimately resulted in the rising cost. So the cost of student student debt and higher education and student loans, et cetera, these things are not just limited to students. So in emphasizing class struggle, we have to really emphasize that universities and colleges are expanding deeper and deeper into our communities. And that is also raising the cost of living. Um, it's placing an array of families in financial estates. It's 
creating police states because some, a lot, a plethora of universities are has the 1033 program budget. Um, so when it's really about connecting the dots and using historical and dialectical materialism to allow people to see these clear patterns, to see that not only is this a side of struggle, uh, that we should not just have an anti-academia um, approach to how we engage colleges and universities and students, but really understand that this is a collective fight um, that really affects us all. And it's far beyond um, student loans. It's really a fight for power. Absolutely. want to thank you so much, Erica Keynes, for joining me for this segment today. We are out of time, but uh, we will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, my friends, we are back. Happy to be joined by you. Happy to be here. Today is Friday. Happy Friday, September 16th. And in 20 minutes, we'll be opening the phone lines to you where you can give us a call and ask us about anything that you've heard on the show or anything at all that's on your mind. But that is not the only way you can reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary because you, our allies, comrades, and accomplices, that's y'all, can still reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary in Washington, D.C. at 3.20 p.m. by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure live on Rumble. Right now, that's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear you. We want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And I am happy to be joined for this hour by Walter Smolensky. Lyric, a journalist, organizer, and editor of Liberation Newspaper and managing editor of liberationnews.org. Walter, thanks so much for joining me. Glad to be here. Really glad you are here, too, because there's so much going on in U.S. politics, and it's really hard to keep up, particularly since, you know, domestic politics is a mess, is always a mess, but it's a special mess now because of the midterm elections. And and that's a whole you know circus of of monkeys all all its own. But now that the uh, uh, Russian forces, the limited Russian forces that were engaged in Ukraine, have pulled back a little bit. The United States 
uh, government has seemed to take this as a, a concession by Russia. And they are taking this opportunity to, number one, in the media, uh, you know, crow quite loudly about how, you know, the Ukrainians have pushed Russian, uh, you know, the Russian forces out of out of Ukraine and on and on and on. And Russia's military has been weakened and blah, blah, blah. But they're also using this opportunity to send more weapons to Ukraine. Just yesterday, the Biden administration announced that it will send another $600 million in military aid to Ukraine as the U.S. rushes more weapons to fuel Kiev's counteroffensive that uh, they're saying is claimed, reclaimed large stretches of uh, uh, Ukraine and forced Russian troops to retreat. Uh, the White House, White House has said that the 20, that this is the 21st time that the Defense Department has pulled weapons and other equipment off the shelves to deliver to Ukraine. I, you know, Walter, I'm, I think I'm annoyed by how they frame the way the Department of Defense exists as if, as if, as if it's like a big pantry with, you know, just a bunch of missiles sitting on shelves waiting for that. That's not how it works. There are defense contractors that are building and delivering these weapon systems. I mean, you know, so... I, what are your thoughts about just just this entire U.S. response to Russia's strategic, for whatever reasons, whether we agree with their strategic reasons or not, uh, to to withdraw some of their troops from some of the regions in Ukraine? What what are you what's your take on the U.S. response uh, to to Russia doing that and pouring more money uh, and more weapons into Ukraine? Well, well, definitely. I mean, the the proxy war strategy that the United States has been pursuing in Ukraine, where they, you know, the Ukrainians do the fighting and the dying, but the United States provides the weapons. And like you're saying, it's you know really meaning the the United States based weapons contractors provide the weapons. Um, that's that's a huge payday for a lot of these corporations like Boeing, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin. You know, the, the main pillars of the military-industrial complex in the United States uh, get a huge amount of money uh, because because of the position of the Biden administration, which is that, you know, we, we will pay for whatever it takes, like whatever weapons you need uh, with, you know, very limited exceptions, however much ammunition you need, uh, you know, for however long you need it for, like, we've, we've got it. Just, just keep fighting. Just keep uh, essentially in, inflicting uh, military and geopolitical blows on Russia, uh, which the United States obviously has a regime change policy towards. Um, so yes, this is a huge payday for them. I mean, sixty billion dollars was allocated, uh, you know, to to this effort, and there'll be more where that comes from if the sixty billion dollars uh, runs out. I mean, it's such an outrage, both in the sense of, of, like, peace and stability in the world, right? I mean, the United States is doing everything it can to keep this war going. Uh, and it's also an outrage from the point of view of, of working class and oppressed people inside the United States. I mean, Jackson, Mississippi does not have safe water to drink. So, so many other cities also don't have safe water to drink. Uh, there's an inflation crisis. I mean, people can't afford to keep a roof over their heads. The the schools that their kids go to are falling apart, uh, and, and yet there is there is an 
unlimited amount of money that the government is willing to spend on the war in Ukraine, uh, and and it doesn't even get debated. I mean, there's there's no big controversy, like like for the relief of ten thousand dollars of student loan debt. It's a huge controversy. Oh, can we really afford this? No one ever asked that question when it comes the proxy war in Ukraine, uh, especially not now that they, they feel like they're getting, you know, they're seeing results on the battlefield. Yeah. And, you know, to be clear, this most recent funding that Biden announced includes uh, $2.2 billion in long-term military financing that was announced by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken during a visit to Ukraine last week. And in addition to $675 million in a weapons package that was announced by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in Europe the same day. This is it is it is unconscionable to me that the White House is now just going right out and admitting, yeah, this is the 22nd, 21st time that that we've, you know, given Ukraine weapons and, and money after they. As you pointed out correctly, Walter, hemmed and hawed over student loan debt. And not only let's not forget that they didn't defend the child tax credit. They let that expire. So all of those children that the the child tax credit lifted out of poverty, all of those children plunged back into poverty, uh, hasn't done anything uh, in regard to affordable housing, hasn't met the material needs of, you know, working people. And and in particular, in in light of the what I think is is a an insufficient deal that was made with the rail workers who the union was pushing for 15 paid sick days or 15 sick days. They got one. They got one sick day and the Biden administration that is giving, throwing money at Ukraine hand over fist considers it a win that his negotiators convinced the corporate rail bosses to cave and give rail workers one sick day. I this I, I, I can't find the words that we can say on the air, Walter, that reflect the level of outrage that I wish we were seeing from working class folks in this country at the glaring hypocrisy and contradictions that we're seeing emerging from the Biden White House. But I really do feel that people are still very much in that uh, a period of, of, of thinking, well, you know, it could be worse because it could be Trump. It could be the Republicans. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's really the only appeal they have left. I mean, like, like just, in, in light of everything that you said, right, that, you know, the, the review of all of the failures uh, and, you know, just, just issues that have been ignored by the Biden administration, like, how do you come up with a with a positive pitch for why you should support, either support the Biden administration itself or support the Democratic Party generally and vote for Democrats in the midterm? I mean, there, there really is hardly any positive case that you can make. I mean, there is the, you know, the quote-unquote Inflation Reduction Act, but there was there's so little in that compared to where it started from, where the social program expansion, the Build Back Better social program expansion began from. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's just an enormous climb down. Uh, essentially, essentially nothing done to improve working people's lives. The ten thousand dollars of relief in student loan debt. I mean, I'm I'm glad that that happened. Uh, and I think that the right wing criticism of it is ridiculous. But I mean, there are people who have 
fifty, a hundred thousand dollars of student loan debt more. Um, you know that that too uh, is not sufficient. So what what do they have left? I mean, exactly what you said. They they have the fact that they are not Republican, um, and and you can kind of see why they've embarked on this completely ridiculous and reckless strategy of, of actually supporting the most far right wing candidates in Republican primaries. Mm-hmm. Like maybe maybe these are the only guys who are going to be able to beat. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that that just blows my mind that, you know, the the thing that the Democratic Party seems to have no problem spending money on, aside from giving all this money to Ukraine, which, by the way, um, uh, thanks for uh, Manny Nile in the chat. Uh, shout out to the By Any Means Necessary chat for reminding me that unions are illegal in Ukraine, thanks to Volodymyr Zelensky. So pro-union President Joe Biden doesn't mind throwing all this money at Ukraine. But the Democratic Party also doesn't have a problem spending money on Republican candidates ahead of the midterms in this country. And this is this is the logic that they are claiming for doing this. Now, they've spent nearly $19 million across eight states in primaries this year, uh, amplifying far-right Republican candidates who've questioned or outright denied the viability uh, or the validity of the 2020 election. So, yes, Democrats have funded campaigns or or boosted the campaigns of literal election deniers. Uh, total Democratic spending uh, 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 on these campaigns rises to about $53 million. But if you throw Illinois in there, uh, then we're talking about uh, like an additional $34.5 million where the Democratic Governors Association in Illinois and the campaign of Governor J.B. Pritzker, who, remember, is a Democrat, uh, spent $34.5 million to successfully elevate a GOP candidate who has said it was appalling that party leaders in Illinois wanted Trump to concede the 2020 elections. Democrats, for their part, they explain this away by saying that their actions are simply getting a jump on attacking Republican candidates for the general election, while others openly acknowledge that they're trying to uh, secure weaker competition in the fall. But see, Walter, the thing is, if the Democrats actually had policies that benefited the people, they wouldn't have to resort to a campaign strategy of elevating the worst GOP candidates to hopefully guarantee a win for them in the fall. And that's number one. But number two, it seems to me, Walter, that this strategy backfired on the Democrats one time before. Why in the world did they keep going back to a losing strategy? Yeah, really good points. I mean, uh, well, just just to expand on on what you're saying about the, the governor's race in Illinois. Yeah, I mean, that's by far the, the largest infusion of money was there. Uh, in addition to being an election denier, that, that guy, uh, the far-right candidate, uh, Bailey, I believe is his name, um, he said that uh, abortion is so much worse than the Holocaust. He, he said something to the effect of the, the Holocaust doesn't even, it's not even a shadow of the loss of life that we've experienced as a result of abortion in this country. So, I mean, really just unbelievable stuff there. You know, they're, they're giving this guy $35 million at the same time as they're, they're fundraising nonstop, demagogically using the issue of abortion, even though they've done, done nothing about it, um, you know, all of the times that they've 
been in power and have have some uh, ability to pass legislation, including right now, including right now when they controlled the House, the Senate, and the White House. Um, and and yeah, I think it's it's absolutely right to think back to 2016 and consider how this pans out. Um, we we know because of WikiLeaks that the Clinton administration, uh, sorry, that the Clinton campaign made a conscious decision to, in their words, elevate Donald Trump, uh, to make him the focal point of attention, more likely to succeed in the Republican primary. And, and they thought, oh, well, Donald Trump, he's, that's, that's going to be a piece of cake. No problem to beat him. Uh, anybody could beat Donald Trump. Well, that ended up being not true. That was very, very wrong. Um, now, now, I mean, Donald Trump got far fewer votes than Hillary Clinton, but because of the way the Electoral College works, you know, because elections are, are not really democratic in the United States, uh, Donald Trump became the president, and, and the Democrats did help him get there. Um, so this could very well happen. I mean, I, I live in Pennsylvania. Uh, the the uh, Republican candidate for governor, Doug Mastriano, is another one of these, you know, just un- unbelievable, like like election deniers, far right wing, uh, ultra racist. You know, he speaks at QAnon conferences. He um, he, he dresses up like a Confederate soldier too, no. which he insists is just for historical purposes. But I, I don't know about that. Uh, like like this this guy has received uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars from the Democratic Party, and as a consequence, his ideas and this is the case for for every state. Uh, and all across the country where, where this is happening. You know, his ideas get a huge amount of attention. He has this, this giant platform, you know, being the Republican governor, uh, candidate for governor of a major swing state. Uh, and so those ideas will become more normalized and more popular. And even if they're rejected by a majority of people at the end of the day in, in November, uh, in the long term, that that's still a, a huge boost because these these far right wingers do actually have a coherent political project, like mm. their political goals and ideals and ideologies that they are committed to, uh, and and you know it doesn't bother them that much if maybe it doesn't work out this election cycle, because they're in it for the long haul. Uh, the Democrats do do not have the ability to think past this election cycle uh, or whatever election cycle they're in at a given moment. They they've demonstrated no such foresight um, and and no no ability to actually galvanize a significant section of the population behind their program because you know everybody knows at this point or most people know at this point that what the Democrats promised on the campaign trail uh, does not actually come to pass. Yeah, definitely. I think the people are are, are certainly painfully aware that uh, what they thought they were getting with the Biden presidency, they absolutely have not gotten. And literally all they've gotten is not Trump. But if they close their eyes and close their ears, can you really tell the difference between Trump and Biden when it comes to policies? Not. I think it's kind of difficult to do that. But we're going to pick this up on the other side of the first break of the hour. We will be back on By Any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., so please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
Phone lines are open, my friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am Jackie Lukeman, and I continue to be joined by Walter Smolarek. Um, you know, we were talking about Biden on the other side of the break. And, you know, as as much of a lackluster performance as he has shown in his uh, administration in the first few years of his, his administration, miraculously, I don't know how this happened, but his approval rating jumps from 36 to 45 percent in an Associated Press NORC poll that was released Thursday, as uh, I guess he and the Democrats appear to ride a wave of legislative wins and a drop in gas prices ahead of November's midterm elections. I I don't know. I don't make a lot of that. I, I think that, you know, I, I think that's two things, Walter. I think that is a reflection of the I hate to say it, and I don't want people to be offended, but I think it's true. I think it's a reflection of the the political immaturity of the American population, where they don't see that they're getting crumbs from the Biden uh, administration. Um, but I also think that it's it's partially a result of a, a, a very willing corporate media that wants Biden to have some wins. So they frame these legislative actions, you know, the the student loan debt forgiveness and, uh, you know, the rail worker strike negotiation as these huge monumental uh, uh, accomplishments when they're really drops in the bucket, Walter. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think when it's like compared to doing absolutely nothing, taking, you know, a handful of Small, but, you know, still steps that you can feel like that, you know, yeah, that's enough to get you uh, a bump in the polls. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's, I don't think it's going to last very long, though. Um, you know, Biden is, well, what, I guess before I get into that, I mean, one thing to keep in mind is that uh, with this bump in the polls that Biden's gotten uh, because of, you know, a, a couple basically minor policy successes over the past month or so, um, it still leaves him underwater, right? I mean, mm. all of the major polling firms are still showing more people disapproving than approving of him. And I mean, considering that he's only been in office for like a year and a half, that's that's pretty bad. Like compared with past presidents, that's like really seriously not doing well. So he's still not in good shape. And and I think that the bump that he's getting will be fleeting, uh, mainly because of what the Federal Reserve is doing. Mm. Um, in, in order to get inflation under control, you know, in their words, get inflation under control, they're um, they're inducing a recession. They're they're purposely causing a recession by raising interest rates uh, to to essentially make sure that workers have less power at work. Therefore, they have uh, lower wages, less bargaining power, uh, and and so demand, right? Overall demand in the economy goes down because workers have less money to spend. Uh, so they're uh, in the process of doing this, we're kind of beginning to feel the first effects of it. Uh, the the uh, labor market is cooling down, right? It's becoming, um, you know, it's beginning to become more difficult to, to find jobs. And all of those trends will accelerate because the, the Federal Reserve, which is a completely undemocratic institution that's 100% in the pocket of Wall Street, has made it very clear that they're determined to continue this course of action 
whatever it takes. You know, even if the, the recession gets really bad, even if the economy really tanks, they're, they're communicating right now that they're going to show results. Uh, and, and so that is going to be, you know, that is going to overshadow any sort of, you know, inflation reduction act, uh, you know, minor debt cancellation policy that the, the Biden administration is able to, to pull off um, because they're only willing to do things that are that are not basically non-transformative, right? Things that can kind of tinker around the edges. Some people will will feel it in their lives, and that'll be enough to, to sort of help you out a little bit. But but I don't think any of that is going to hold up once people start experiencing a full-fledged recession, which is what the Federal Reserve is promising. Mm, a full-fledged recession, which will include higher unemployment. And uh, there was another poll, a generic ballot that was uh, uh, issued from Harvard Caps uh, Harris. And uh, it's the Harvard Caps Harris poll. And they shared this exclusive, exclusively with The Hill. And they showed that 50 percent of registered voters supported the Democratic candidate compared to 49 percent uh, who backed the Republican when respondents were asked who they were more likely to vote for if the election were held today. Now, I think that's that is actually a more accurate reflection of where the country is in regard to its its mood on Joseph Biden. I mean, one and a half, not even two years into his first term. And 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 I mean, I'm not I'm not, you know, trying to project a second one. But I'm just saying people are really I, I think people are not sold enough on what he has done uh, in in the time that he could have. I mean, once again, we, we keep pointing out, Walter, the Democrats do have control of the Senate, the House and the White House. But there's always all this talk about what they can't do because of the Republicans. And I, I think there might be enough people who realize that's just hogwash. And I think the Democrats are in trouble come the midterms there. I don't think there are any legislative wins that will change that unless Biden does something truly transformative. But remember, he's the guy who said that nothing would fundamentally change. That's right. Yeah, he said exactly that to rich donors. Yeah, um, the the prospects I, I don't I don't think are good for him in the long term. Yeah, the 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 fact that like polling, you know, even at this stage in the game, I, I agree with you. I think there is some some lessons we can draw from it. That uh, you know, it's like a close race between you know, in a hypothetical rematch between him and, and Donald Trump, really says a lot. Uh, I mean, considering that. Donald Trump is also very unpopular. I mean, his high unfavorable rating, you know, his unfavorable ratings are, are as high or higher than, than Biden's. And, you know, in, in some of those polls, uh, you know, the, the results come out and, and it's like, you know, 40, maybe 43 or 42 for Biden and like 41 or 42 for Trump. Like there's actually a big section of the population that like when posed that question, just cannot bring themselves to answer. Like, like, are you serious? Like Joe Biden or Donald Trump? Like, I can't, you can't make me answer that question. There's, there's so much disgust out there. I think for the dominant figures, the, the leadership figures of, of both political parties, uh, that, that it's, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it seems like a, a highly unstable period in U S politics to me because all wings of the elite are so discredited uh, and if you would if you would compare Donald Trump's 
approval rating to say Mitch McConnell's or Kevin McCarthy's. I mean, I'm sure that theirs is even lower. Sort of the uh, you know more mainstream, you know, quote unquote mainstream establishment Republicans. Um, they're super unpopular. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer also probably less popular than Joe Biden. I, I would expect uh, Congress as an institution is extremely, extremely unpopular. I mean, its, it's approval rating is like in the 20s in most polls. So, so yeah, it's, it's I think, a, a kind of an across-the-board delegitimization of the political elite that we're seeing. Mm. And, you know, I, I hate to talk about Donald Trump ever at all for any reason, but but we have to because it is the news. And I guess he was issued a, a special master to review the documents that uh, he uh, allegedly uh, spirited away from the White House uh, in violation of very clear rules that that are imposed upon presidents and government officials. We talked about this many, many times. But now Trump is doing his typical thing. He's making threats. He's saying uh, he said Thursday that the nation would face problems the like of the likes of which perhaps we've never seen if he's indicted over his handling of classified documents after leaving office, um, which is an apparent suggestion that such a move by the Justice Department could spark more violence from Trump supporters. I you know what? I I, I wouldn't dismiss his threat out of hand because we saw what happened last time, Walter. I, I would take that very seriously, too, very seriously. And and I think that the people in the Department of Justice are, are also taking that very seriously. Um, yeah, it's, it's certainly how Trump handled these documents. I mean, from the information that's available, it, it seems like, yeah, clearly this is like not allowed. Um, but but also, you know, it's like how many times has Trump done something that's like really blatantly illegal, but but nothing happened to him. Uh, part of part of that is because you know he was in the White House, um, but but there's been no consequences for him legally uh, since since leaving office. There's a lot of investigations going on, and I I don't think it's impossible that those would end up you know actually amounting to something. It it is possible, I think that the justice system would make the calculation that they must move against Trump. But but what they're weighing that against, one of the main factors that they're weighing that against, uh, is the prospect for exactly what Trump said, for widespread violence to break out in society if something like that were to happen. Um, this, is, this is a really, uh, it's not unprecedented in U.S. history, but it's, it's very rare in, in U.S. politics, uh, or at least in the last 50 years or so of U.S. politics, um, for one of the main figures, or, or in this case, the main figure of wanting one of the main political parties to say, uh, to, to use essentially mass violence as um, a, a political tool, like, like domestically. You know, of course, all of them do that abroad. But as a tool for inner intra-ruling class struggle, uh, threatening the outbreak of, of essentially a civil war. I mean, the likes of which this country has never seen before. I mean, that sounds like, you know, threatening a civil war to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that that is something he's willing to say publicly and something that the most powerful law enforcement officials in the country need to take very seriously and actually act accordingly uh, is is really tells you what you need to know about the extreme volatility 
of the present political moment. Lindsey Graham, I mean, he's he's also kind of like an establishment guy, and he's traditionally been thought of as like an establishment guy. But but he's made similar threats uh, with regards to the the criminal probe against him in the state of Georgia for pressuring the the state secretary of state to essentially um, fabricate votes for for Trump during the 2020 election. So this is becoming uh, more normalized in sort of the the, uh, halls of power and at the heights of of U.S. political power. Um, Really, really dangerous and and really something that I think all progressive people need to keep a close eye on and, and not minimize or dismiss. Yeah, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham uh, said last month that there would be riots in the street if there is a prosecution of Donald Trump for mishandling classified information. That's that's what he said. And, you know, Trump, for his part, not only is threatening violence if he is indicted, he's also said that if he is indicted, he would have no prohibition against running for president again. He said, um, I think if it happened, I think you'd have problems in this country, the likes of which perhaps we've never seen before. I don't think the people of the United States would stand for it. But he actually believes that if he were to be indicted for mishandling classified documents, that he just wouldn't be stopped from running for uh, office for the White House again. And this raises the question, uh, uh, Walter, considering the lack of response to the violence last time on January 6th, I mean, and, and considering the fact that there has been no accountability for anything Trump has actually done uh, uh, since he has left office, who would stop him? It's a good question. It's, it's a really good question. Yeah. Um, you know, Trump, Trump, is uh, is running on a political platform that does not have majority support in this country. Um, you know, for the type of like ultra right wing, you know, racist, anti LGBTQ, anti immigrant, you know, pro corporate, anti environment politics that that Trump puts forward. I mean, there's there's a lot of people in the United States who agree with that, but but they're not a majority. They're just not a majority. I mean, on issue after issue. Uh, it, it's actually the progressive position on, on most key social concerns that uh, receives majority support. Um, so, so really, the way the way that he can win is well, you know, first of all, exploiting the electoral college and, and exploring uh, other, you know, maybe even more dramatic ways to curtail public participation in elections, uh, but also by posturing as an anti-establishment figure. Um, that's always been ridiculous, considering that he's, you know, a, a well-connected billionaire real estate developer. Uh, but it would be, it would be kind of especially difficult for him to pull that off the second time, considering that he he had actually been the president. I mean, how is that like the anti-establishment candidate? Right. But you know what? If he's if he's under if he's under indictment, if he's like facing a legal battle, I think there, there's a way he could actually spin that to his political advantage. Uh, because he could say, well, look, they're so scared of me coming back, right? This this elite that you hate, right? And maybe you hate them for a completely different reason than, than I hate them. But this hated political elite is so scared of me coming back into office that they're trying to do something unprecedented. They're trying to put a sitting president in prison. And so, you know, that's, that's, that's what he would go with, right? Now, I don't think that that means that the Justice Department... Um, 
should like give him a free pass or the Biden administration. You know, basically that doesn't confirm the Biden administration's approach. But but essentially, I think they they're in a bind because on the one hand, you know, they're they're threatened by Trump. They don't want Trump to come back. But on the other hand, they're completely unwilling to do anything that could actually shake loose some of his base of support. Mm, mm-hmm. like, the Biden administration did everything that they promised on the campaign trail, right? Like. Um, you mentioned the child tax credit earlier in the show, right? If that was if that was made permanent, if community college became free forever, uh, if they forgave fifty thousand dollars of student loan debt per person, uh, if they had uh, for the first time in U.S. history guaranteed family and medical leave, uh, if they if they did all of the things that they were promising on the campaign trail, uh, police reform, immigration reform, um, you know, environmental programs. Um, taxing the rich, right? Taxing the rich and lowering taxes on working class people. If all of these measures were actually implemented, then I think the Justice Department would be able to move against Trump uh, because, you know, for a lot of people, the, the spell would be broken because what Trump proposes are, are demagogic fake solutions to, to very real problems. Uh, but if they're not going to do that, and if they're just going to take what would appear to be like like an administrative uh you know, maneuver against Trump using the the force of like federal law enforcement, um, and and also not offer any compelling alternative program. Uh, yeah, that probably won't work out very well for them. And maybe Trump would be able to mobilize large numbers of people, masses of people, to violent action. Yeah, I think, uh, as you said earlier, the, the, the threat is not something that we should look at and dismiss out of hand. It's not something we take lightly because we see how quickly and easily Trump can mobilize his supporters to do just about anything to defend him. Uh, but we're going to pick this up on the other side of another quick break. We'll be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are still open, friends, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Walter Smolarek. And, you know, Walter, talking about, you know, the the MAGA folks, Trump's supporters, got me to thinking about this uh, issue with uh, Ron DeSantis and uh, also Texas Governor uh, Greg Abbott basically carrying out what looks to me, what it would look to me to be a a human trafficking scheme, if anybody else did it for any other reason, and flying migrants uh, who were supposed to go to uh, Massachusetts, they they came to uh, Florida, uh, they came to Texas first, they stopped in Florida, and then DeSantis and Abbott cooked up the scheme to lie to these people and say that they were going to give them, uh, you know, assistance with housing, assistance, uh, you know, with work permits, uh, help them learn English so that they could find work. But instead, these people cooked up a plan to fly migrants to 
uh, Martha's Vineyard, the the vacation spot of the rich and famous and here in the United States, specifically to a, a a community in Martha's Vineyard called Washington, which is where uh, Kamala Harris's official residence is. So DeSantis takes the $15 million that the uh, Florida legislature allocated to transport migrants out of Florida and flew 50 of these migrants people to, and I hate calling them migrants, they are human beings, 50 of these people from uh, uh, Texas, uh, or from Florida rather, to Martha's Vineyard. And Greg Abbott, for his part in the scheme, provided the buses that picked the people up at the airport at Martha's Vineyard and drove them to the neighborhood that is near uh, uh, Kamala Harris's house. Now, not only, Walter, is this a vulgar, vulgar political scheme, but, but as I said, it is also, if anyone else did this, this would, this would be human trafficking. So, so how in the world does this fly in the world of U.S. politics, yeah, it's it's, un, it's unbelievable. It's un, it's completely. Uh, I mean, you you said it great. It's vulgar. It's it's human trafficking. Uh, it's a human rights violation. And and the idea that this is something that is just like allowed to go forward that that apparently nobody even challenges the authority of the governor to do something like this uh, shows you how little regard for human dignity. Uh, basic rights that that this that the authorities of this country have. I mean, it's it's completely outrageous that this is allowed to go forward, and it's actually I mean, it's actually criminal, like you're saying. It's it's completely beyond the pale. Um, so, you know, I I think it's I think it's essentially related uh, both to the you know the long term campaign of anti immigrant racism that's been going on in this country for years and years and years, uh, and, and also relates to the political opportunism of the Republican governors who are involved, Abbott and Ron DeSantis. You know, there, there's basically this parallel primary that's going on in the Republican Party where, you know, it's like, okay, let's say for whatever reason Donald Trump is not able to run for president in 2024, uh, who's going to be our candidate then, right? That's kind of the, the parallel shadow primary. And, and what these types of stunts are about, I think, are are DeSantis and Abbott and similar figures jockeying for position in that race to say, you know, no, I, I am the most extreme racist, right? If not Trump, I'm the guy. I'm the guy who is going to follow the most draconian, cruel anti-immigrant policies. Uh, and, and look what I'm doing. Uh, I'm busting immigrants and, and dumping them on Kamala Harris's front yard, right? Like that's the type of, of just like unbelievably racist appeal that these politicians are, are cooking up, and they have so little regard for human dignity that if that means uh, engaging in human trafficking and, and treating the lives of immigrants as, as you know purely like political footballs, I mean in, in the most direct and disgusting way possible, uh, they don't think twice about that. They, they don't bad side to that. Yeah, the interesting thing about this whole uh, scheme is that the. Uh, uh, the people uh, who were <laughs> trafficked into Martha's Vineyard were actually uh, asylum seekers, I, I think. And uh, thanks, uh, Nwadi, in the chat uh, for pointing that out. They had actually already been given a court date. 
uh, for to you know for their asylum hearing here in the United States, and they're also most of them. Uh, were immigrants from Venezuela, a country that the United States has imposed crushing economic sanctions on for decades, just like it has Cuba, uh, destabilized the economy of their country in collusion with the right wing of that country to seize what's left of the uh, uh, public uh, uh, resources in that country to privatize them for uh, the small capitalist class and to allow the U.S. to come in and, you know, just completely take over the rest of the economy for the rich and to leave the rest of the Venezuelan people uh, com- in complete and abject poverty. So w- we have an issue here where the U.S. government, and I pointed this out earlier, uh, 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 Walter, where the U.S. government has kept its boot on the neck of countries like Venezuela to create the kind of crisis where people are leaving because the 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 uh, uh, the country is unstable because of U.S. imperialism, and then they come to the very belly of the beast that has the boot on the neck of their home country, and they expect assistance, aid, and what do they get instead? Exactly what the American way is, exploitation and being used as pawns. And I and I I just feel like this particular incident is such a great and perfect encapsulation of what the American way really is when it comes to foreign policy and the human beings that are caught in the crosshairs of it, Walter. For sure, for sure. I mean, it's, it's such an unbelievable irony um, that the victims of U.S. foreign policy are, are re-victimized when they uh, come come to the United States out of sheer necessity. Um, I mean, it reminds me a, a little bit about the the controversy uh, exactly one year ago with with Afghan uh, refugees. You know, the, the United States engages in a twenty year long brutal blood soaked occupation of Afghanistan, left hundreds of thousands of people dead. You know, the the fabric of society shredded the economy completely shredded uh and then when there's you know a more profound crisis when the the crisis that the united states causes deepens and people need to get out uh then you know there there is this attitude oh well they're they're muslims we don't really want them coming here um so yeah the the double standard the the sheer transparency of this hypocritical policy towards other countries where everything is supposed to be about human rights and, you know, making sure that those in the targeted countries uh, are, are able to live in a democratic order. Uh, but, but then when the United States actually does get its way or, or, you know, partially gets its way, of course, the government of Venezuela has not been overthrown. They've been able to resist that. But the economy is still in a, in a profound state of crisis. Um, when, when that comes to pass, then the United States turns its back. Yeah. You know, and and the idea that the Florida legislature, we know how much money the Florida legislator uh, legislature allocated 15 million dollars just to transport people uh, who were seeking asylum, who showed up in Florida uh, out of the state. 
that's just for that. We don't know how much the Texas legislature allocated, but they they paid money for those buses. And of course, it goes right back to the conversation earlier, Walter. We were saying that, you know, this country has the money to meet the needs of everyone in it. And, and honestly, everyone who comes here for whatever reason. But it chooses not to because that $15 million that the Florida legislature allocated to uh, bus people out of Florida, they could have spent that money just housing, clothing and feeding people, helping them to get acclimated and situated in Florida. The same is true for here in Washington, D.C. and in New York and in Chicago, where uh, people have been bused out of these southern states. Here in D.C., Mayor Muriel Bowser declared the situation uh, a public emergency and last week released $10 million in city funds to help uh, uh, the people who have been bused from Florida and Texas. And, you know, she's been asking the National Guard to come in and help. And thankfully, they've said no, because we don't need a military response to this. But the fact that the city, this city, Washington, D.C., has $10 million somewhere in its coffers that could be released to help people. What? Why did there need to be a crisis that existed for this money to be released to help people at all? And I hope, Walter, that people are asking that question as opposed to why are all these migrants coming to this country? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are so many double standards when it comes to to the anti-immigrant movement, anti-immigrant politics in in the U.S. I mean, one of one of the big points that anti-immigrant politicians always go on and on and on about is that, well, the reason why we we have to kick out immigrants from the United States is because they're taking American workers' jobs. And and if you want to be able to get a good job that you can support your family on, uh, that means that we have to deport many, many more immigrants um, so that so that you can have their job uh, instead of them. Um, so so here we have uh, a situation, this is what's really going on right now in the country, where the Federal Reserve, the most powerful economic institution in this country, is explicitly saying that the goal of their policy, the goal of the principal strategy that they're pursuing with regards to the U.S. economy is to create unemployment. That's their goal. That's what that's what a tight labor, or that's what you know, slack in the labor market means. Uh, it means that we want to drive the economy off the cliff so that it's harder for workers to find jobs, and therefore capitalists can pay you less. Um, those are the people who we should be upset with when it comes to jobs and employment and economic dignity. Uh, there is plenty of wealth. There's plenty of resources for people to be able to come to the United States from other countries and to live a decent life, uh, and for everybody who was born in the United States to also live a decent life. I mean, there's no reason that this has to be a zero-sum thing. Uh, the, the only thing that imposes that on us uh, are you know, the demagogic rhetoric of politicians and the unbelievable hoarding of wealth by the people at the top of the economy. Uh, and, and again, they are explicitly following a policy to create more unemployment. So I think the next time that a politician tells you that you need to get rid of immigrants because they're taking your jobs, well, well think, think about what Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve are doing. Think about what all of the Wall Street bankers have conspired to do and are now claiming openly that that is their goal. Yeah, you know, and it is hard to ignore the economic 
crisis that is already befalling so many people. I mean, in this country right now, one in five households has medical debt. That includes people with private insurance. Uh, Medical debt is leaving many people in the U.S. unable to afford groceries or pay their mortgages, even among the insured. This is research that was published uh, Friday found. And, you know, this is in the midst of the Federal Reserve uh, basically creating a recession about to increase unemployment pandemic aid that cut U.S. poverty to a new low in 2021. Um, That's gone. We, We don't have that anymore. And now we have the U.S. government under Joseph Biden, the not Trump, the uh, pro-union president and whatever else he wants to call himself, basically telling people that they have to suffer some type of austerity uh, uh, to save Ukraine. And I, I, I just I come I can't help but come back to the the desperate throes of empire flailing about and grabbing onto anything that it possibly can walter to try to save itself from the the decline that is obviously happening that it can't stop but what do the people need to do to not be dragged down with it very true i mean the the policy that's being pursued by the Biden administration in Ukraine, I mean, globally, and also especially with regards to China, but the flashpoint being in Ukraine is so incredibly dangerous for the very existence of human civilization. I mean, here we're in a situation in Ukraine where the two largest nuclear armed powers are are engaged in a proxy war with each other, uh, where, you know, the Pentagon is, is actively engaged in the management of the war, the planning of the war, the execution of it, the strategizing. Uh, you know, this is disputed, but I wouldn't be surprised at all that the actual tactical decision-making going on in the battlefield. And, and they're paying for the whole thing. They're underwriting the whole thing. And on the other side of the battlefield is, you know, the, the country with the second largest nuclear arsenal in the world. Uh, and so the Biden administration and the, the Pentagon establishment, the State Department establishment, uh, they're they're okay with playing this very very dangerous game because they want above all else to preserve the power of their empire, which they they do feel I agree with you is is threatened by a number of long term factors, primarily the rise of Russia and China and and other uh, independent economic powerhouses in, in the world economy that are capable of uh, functioning as as an alternative pole. Even if it's not, you know, politically or ideologically coherent, uh, it, that such an arrangement would represent a severe diminution of U.S. imperial power on the world stage. Um, and so, if the price of preventing that from taking place is, you know, the risk of a nuclear war, uh, that's you know a game of chicken that they're willing to play. That's uh, you know a, a risk that they're willing to take. Um, but for the rest of us, for for people who, you know, are not a general or you know not a not a vice president, that a weapons manufacturer, uh, that 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 sounds completely insane, right? Like like how could anybody make that decision and think that that risk is worth it? So the the you know being dragged down with the ship, you know, the rest of us being dragged down with him, uh, with the U.S. empire as it pursues this unbelievably reckless new Cold War policy. Is is very very much the way that that people should think about it. Like, do do you really want to go down this route? He 
the elite who exploit and oppress you definitely want to go down this route in the world stage. But but the rest of us should say no to that. Absolutely. The rest of us should say no to that. And we should organize for the material needs of the people to be met in the richest nation in the world, arguably the richest nation this planet has ever seen. There's no reason that we have to be arguing about whether all student loan debt can be canceled, about why there is no or not enough affordable housing, why corporations can't be forced to pay people a living wage. There, there is no reason that we need to continue to have these arguments with a government, with a system that clearly has plenty of money to fund war and imperialism and austerity and uh, theft of resources and oppression around the world but refuses to meet the material needs of the people here and denies people around the world to have their human rights and dignity met as well. No, we need to organize for socialism. That is why we do what we do and we hope you will join us in this struggle. But I want to thank Walter Smolarek so much for joining me today. We're out of time for this show today and this week, but we'll be back next week with a whole new slate of shows. Until then, Aluta Continua, the struggle continues. But Victoria Acerta, victory is certain. Peace. By any means necessary. 